How is your Culebra cut? The Panama Canal is a clear passageway as far as the Culebra cut, but Gold Hill has a way of slipping into the cut, and until dredges can clear the channel, the industrial schedule of the world is out of gear. How about your own canal? The intestinal canal is a clear passageway as far as the large intestine. There, if you become constipated, waste matter is allowed to stagnate. It becomes unnaturally dry and undergoes abnormal fermentation and putrefaction. Germ activity is increased. Your whole system is out of gear. Result, the production of irritating and poisonous substances which are absorbed into your blood and carried all over your body, liable to produce disease anywhere. The longer such stagnation is allowed to exist, the harder it is to clean out the canal. Ninety percent of human disease originates in the Culebra cut. If engineers tried to blast out the slide from Culebra Cut, they would have more slides to cope with. If you try to blast out accumulated waste from your Culebra Cut with pills, salts, or purges, you will increase your constipation, and next time you will have to take stronger medication in a larger dose. You can't dredge your canal. You can clean it out with Nujol. Nujol softens the mass and supplies the intestinal canal with sufficient moisture to replace deficient mucus. It causes the obstructive waste matter to pass gently out of your system at a regular hour, absorbing and removing the poisons as it goes. Nujol regularity keeps the traffic of your mind and body operating on schedule. You admire the Panama Canal system. Why not safeguard your own? Your druggist has Nujol. Warning. Nujol is sold only in sealed bottles bearing the Nujol trademark. Insist on Nujol. You may suffer from substitutes. Nujol Laboratories, Standard Oil Company, New Jersey. 50 Broadway, New York. I the air with the greatest of a daring young man on the side. Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 22. I gotta tell you folks, the ads are always my favorite part. That Nujol ad was one of the best I've ever encountered, and by best I mean jaw-droppingly detailed in its disgusting metaphor. At the time that advertisement was printed, the Panama Canal had been a huge pain in the ass for years. 
If you're like me, you've inferred that the Culebra Cut was a narrow passage in the Panama Canal, but you're wondering what the hell is the deal with Gold Hill has a way of slipping into the cut? Well, I did a little digging, and it turns out Gold Hill is one of the more prominent and problematic features right next to the Panama Canal. For years, it had been sloughing off and filling in the gap every time they tried to clear it. If you go to the show notes, you'll see a slideshow with some impressive pictures from the Missouri University of Science and Technology presentation, Landslides of the Panama Canal. For now, though, on with the episode. In episode 20, I introduced Mary E. Walker by way of a bunch of articles from 1868. The crown jewel of that episode was a snide article that trivialized Walker and revealed how much her simple act frightened the author. Dr. Walker started wearing men's clothing during the Civil War, so by the time that article was printed, she had already been doing so for several years, and she didn't stop. She carried on her sartorial resistance until her death in 1919. During those intervening 50-plus years, there were literally thousands of newspaper articles written about her, and a lot of them were mocking and dismissive. And that got me wondering, at what point does a public figure espousing a cause pass a point of diminishing returns? In other words, at what point does their rebellious behavior give the other side enough ammunition to counterbalance any good that they're doing. In short, did the optics of Mary E. Walker's act during those 50-plus years amount to a net positive or a net negative? Well, folks, I'm happy to report that I dug up a gem during my research for this episode. And that gem has me thinking that the answer to that question is a resounding positive. Mary E. Walker had a profound influence on the women around her. Where did I find that gem? In a newspaper article printed almost exactly 50 years after that article about Mary E. Walker in Saratoga Springs. I'll pull out that gem later in the episode. For now, I want to give you some context for the world of 1918, two years before women got the vote. Like every other newspaper article in this episode, this one was published 100 years ago this week. And you can see it by following the link to the show notes. Women give talks upon temperance and voting. Mrs. Bull, Miss Beard, Miss Sutton, and Mrs. Shanahan are speakers. Eight billions dollars, enough to float the next Liberty Loan, has been spent on liquor in the United States since war was declared in August 1914 was the word banner of temperance. Mrs. Ella A. Bull, state president of the WCTU, unflung before an audience that filled the women's building, fairgrounds, yesterday. Mrs. Bull gave an inspiring and patriotic address that was greeted enthusiastically by the women and many men who gathered to hear her. She urged the woman voters to use their power to obtain the nomination and election of political officials who will ratify for the Prohibition Amendment. Women's work in wartime was the theme of the other speakers. Miss Emma B. Beard, president of the Consumers League of New York State, sketched briefly the work accomplished by the organization in the state. 
Ms. Sherry Sutton of the Federal Employment Bureau outlined the opportunities for the trained and untrained woman in all fields of labor and war service. The Woman Vote and the Woman Worker was the topic of the talk given by Mrs. James P. Shanahan. She urged the women to acquaint themselves with all the bills before the legislature and with the policy of the candidates for offices. After the program, a reception was held for Mrs. Alfred E. Smith, wife of the Democratic candidate for governor. Miss Emily Smith was in the receiving line with her mother. Hugh here. So in that article, we see connections between women's suffrage, temperance, women's labor, the war, and the New York State Fair. All the articles in this episode illustrate those relationships. These next two articles are about baby contests at the fair. I find them fascinating because at first glance my reaction was, a baby contest? That's weird. But then I realized that a contest was an effective way to promote a vital social program that I'd already encountered in my research. More on that in a minute. As I read this first one, look for the public health incentive that drove the contest. Prize babies at state fair to receive awards today. Program at Women's Building in charge of Mrs. A. H. Hildreth and ladies of G.A.R. Prize baby visitors who have called at the Women's Building for medical examination during the week will receive awards this morning at 11 o'clock. About 160 babies have been examined during the week. Dr. F. W. Sears gave a talk to the mothers yesterday morning. This morning at 11.30, Dr. J. Mumford Keene will give a talk to mothers on baby welfare. Mrs. A. H. Hildreth is chairman of the afternoon program to be conducted by the New York State Federation of Women's Clubs. Among the speakers will be Mrs. G. D. Hewitt of Carthage, Mrs. Harry Farrington, and Mrs. Cora Richardson. The second half of the afternoon program will be in charge of the ladies of the Grand Army of the Republic, Mayor Stone, Reverend Dr. F. W. Betts, and Eugene K. Raid will be speakers. Hugh here. This article from the following day tells the results of the baby contest. I know it's a dry recitation of baby stats, but consider that dryness in context. This was an effort to provide as many mothers as possible with the resources and education necessary to take care of their babies while their husbands were at war. These public health officials were pushing to systematize baby welfare in order to make the next generation of Americans the healthiest yet. Pay special attention to the name of the doctor overseeing the program. Indian Baby Awarded First Prize at Fair Lavoid Pierce, young member of Onondaga tribe, receives mark of 99%, 135 youngsters in contest. Lavoid Dean Pierce, the first Indian to be entered in the baby contest at the state fair, was awarded first prize by the judges yesterday. The youngster received a mark of 99%, and he would have been given a perfect mark except for an extra ounce of flesh. He is the son of Mr. and Mrs. Andrew Pierce, who live on the Onondaga Reservation. He is their eighth child and is six months old. Divisions of Babies The babies were divided into four divisions ranging from six months to 48 months. A physical and mental examination was made. 
Robert Giles, six months old, won the second prize in the first division. He was rated 96%. He is the son of Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln Giles of 208 Jackson Street. In the second division, John H. Mann, 15 months old, won the first prize with a rating of 97.6%. He is the son of Mr. and Mrs. Charles R. Mann of Seneca Street. In that same group, Robert Harter, son of Mr. and Mrs. C. W. Harter of Marcellus, aged 19 months, won second colors. He was registered 96.6%. Wilma Hacker, 29 months old, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Wilson Hacker of number 1612 West Onondaga Street, was the first prize winner in the third division. Her rating was 96%. Carl J. Young won the second prize in that division with a record of 96%. He is 27 months old and is the son of Mr. and Mrs. William Young of number 1512 Spring Street. Margaret M. Walton, 46 months, led the babies of the 4th Division with a record of 97%. She is the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Fred B. Walton of number 509 West Newell Street. The second prize winner in that division was Glenn R. Hawkins, Jr., son of Mr. and Mrs. Glenn B. Hawkins of number 874 Ackerman Avenue. He is 43 months old and has a rating of 96.1%. Silver cups were awarded to the first prize-winning babies, and silver spoons were given as second prizes. 135 babies were examined. The baby welfare work was under the direction of Dr. C. W. Blodgett, assisted by several baby specialists and physicians of the city. The examining physicians reported a greater number of nearly perfect babies this year than have ever before been entered. All the babies were much healthier than in previous years. Hugh here. If you happen to live in Syracuse, the name Blodgett might have rung a bell. It rung a big bell with me because recently I did a massive amount of research on Blodgett Vocational High School. As a matter of fact, that research is why I've been scrutinizing these 1918 papers. The school opened about a hundred years ago, and I'm looking for the exact date. Speaking of Blodgett Vocational, check out this article. 900 register at vocational high. 900 pupils appeared at the vocational high school yesterday prepared to begin the work of the year. It was known that actual study would be impossible because the seats and desks have not yet been installed, but P.M. Hughes, superintendent, called the students together that they might register, indicate the course they desire to take, and thus allow the faculty to map out a program. Hope is now held that the seats and desks will be installed by next Monday, but there is no certainty about it. Hugh here. Now we'll get a lot deeper into this in a future episode, but long story short, Blodgett Vocational was intended to provide girls and lower-income students with new opportunities for vocational training. And in 1919, it hosted one of the nursing stations for this same sort of baby welfare program. And Dr. C.W. Blodgett, the guy overseeing the contest at the fair, turns out he was the son of Andrew Burr Blodgett.
after whom Blodgett Vocational was named, so it seems that the Blodgetts were keenly interested in administering Syracuse's public health. For now, though, just consider what this baby contest at the New York State Fair revealed about the importance of public programs in wartime and how those programs opened up opportunities for women. Speaking of new opportunities for women, get a load of the next four articles, all of which appeared on one page of the Post Standard. Now again, this first one is really dry, but bear with me. I want to convey the importance of the Syracuse gear industry. Syracuse contributed significantly to the U.S. war effort. As you listen, consider that this paper has been full of advertisements for the Brown Lipe Gear Company and lots of other machine producers. Listen for the bit at the end about women in the gear industry. Here goes. Manufacturers of gears to meet here next week. Representatives of industry from all sections of country expected for sessions. Gear manufacturers from all sections of the United States are expected at the semi-annual meeting of the American Gear Manufacturers Association, which will be held at the Onondaga next Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Trade acceptances and the outlook of the steel supply will be two important subjects for discussion, the former to be handled by G.E. Crowfoot and the latter to be treated by C.E. Stewart, Secretary and Treasurer of the Central Steel Company, Massillon, Ohio, a paper on Priority by Charles A. Otis of the Priority Committee is expected to be of vital interest and informative of what the authorities at Washington will allow gear concerns. W. H. Diefendorf, chief engineer of the New Process Gear Corporation, will also have a prominent place on the program with a paper on What is the Possibility of Women Becoming a Permanent Factor in the Gear Industry? Hugh here. Now savor the irony of this. You've got a bunch of gear industry bigwigs from all over the country converging on Syracuse for a meeting. In the middle of a war which has spurned the gear industry to unheard of importance. But the war has done a lot more than that, hasn't it? All these articles have shown how the war opened up new positions and opportunities for women. And in the midst of all this cultural and industrial tumult, these gear industry bigwigs are having a meeting about whether there's a future for women in the gear industry. <laughs> Sorry, guys. In the words of Tommy Lee Jones in No Country for Old Men, you can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. And now the second article. Women at Weather Bureau. Miss Edith L. Nelson of number 112 Hudson Street has assumed her duties as assistant forecaster at the Syracuse Weather Bureau at the Hill Observatory. She is among the first of her sex to take a position in Weather Bureau service and the first in this city. Miss Nelson is a graduate of Central High School and completed her freshman year in the College of Liberal Arts in June. The position was made vacant when C.S. White, former assistant forecaster, left for Camp Greenleaf with a draft quota last week. The appointment was made by Morgan B. Sanford in charge of the local bureau. Hugh here, and now back to the women's building at the fair. Program given at fair by Women's Federation. Mayor Stone addresses ladies of GAR who arranged part of session. 
The first half of yesterday afternoon's program in the women's building at the fair was in charge of the New York State Federation of Women's Clubs. Mrs. A. H. Hildreth was chairman. Mrs. Edward Cameron, director of the State Federation of Women's Clubs, gave the greeting. Mrs. G. D. Hewitt of Carthage spoke on community interest and patriotism. Sectional federation was the topic discussed by Mrs. Harry Farrington. Mrs. Cora Richardson of Hornell, treasurer of the State Federation, spoke on women's conventions. Mrs. Nellie Von Slingerland of New York, field secretary of the National Anti-Mormon League, spoke on the Mormon propaganda and the effort that the women of the state should take in eliminating it. Ladies of the Grand Army of the Republic also gave a program. The opening speech was delivered by Mayor Walter R. Stone. Reverend Dr. F. W. Belt and F. K. Reed, Grand Knight of the Union Council of the Knights of Columbus, gave patriotic talks. Private Thomas Quinn of the Syracuse University Training Camp, Miss Mildred Warnock, and Miss Irene Shaw contributed to the entertainment program. Hugh here, and now the fourth article. Miss Cease joins Navy. Miss Margaret Cease of number 209 Grumbach Avenue will report at Washington Tuesday to assume duties as a landsman yeoman in the United States Navy. Miss Cease enlisted in Buffalo last Saturday. She will wear a uniform adopted by the United States for this branch of service. Miss Cease has been employed for the last seven months by Pierce, Butler, and Pierce. Hugh here. We're going to continue with the articles about women's changing place in society 100 years ago this week, but first, a word from our sponsor. How about your danger zone? You've got it. Every human being is born with it. Your large intestine or colon. It is a large tube, a reservoir or sewer, intended to collect waste matter and remove it from the body. Plug it up with waste, neglect it, and you're sick on your feet. The waste matter stagnates, undergoes decay, fermentation, and germ action. Dangerous poisons are produced that can easily be absorbed and carried all over the body. Allow constipation to become established and you are liable to become definitely and miserably sick, and not on your feet either. You have broken nature's laws. Better be kind to her. Keep the danger zone clean with a regular bowel movement and nature will thank you and pay you back in gold coin, health, good nature, and a feeling of eagerness for your daily task. A large proportion of almost every form of sickness is caused or made worse by the poisons produced as a result of constipation. Nujol has the approval of established medical practice because it does not upset the system as do pills, castor oil, and purgative mineral waters, salts, etc. It softens the contents of the colon, making them easy for the intestinal muscles to move at regular hours. Don't fight nature, help her. Nujol is health insurance for tens of thousands of American families today sold at drugstores everywhere. Warning! Nujol is sold only in sealed bottles bearing the Nujol trademark. Insist on Nujol.
you may suffer from substitutes. Nujal Laboratories, Standard Oil Company, New Jersey, 50 Broadway, New York. And we're back! I've got a neat trio of articles to read you, but first I'm going to lay a little groundwork. This is from the Smithsonian Magazine article, Before Rosie the Riveter, Farmerettes Went to Work. From 1917 to 1919, the Women's Land Army of America brought more than 20,000 city and town women to rural America to take over farm work after men were called to war. Most of these women had never before worked on a farm, but they were soon plowing fields, driving tractors, planting, and harvesting. The Land Army's Farmerettes were paid wages equal to male farm laborers and were protected by an eight-hour workday. For many, the farmerettes were shocking at first, wearing pants, but farmers began to rely upon the women workers. Inspired by the women of Great Britain, organized as the Land Lassies, the Women's Land Army of America was established by a consortium of women's organizations, including gardening clubs, suffrage societies, women's colleges, civic groups, and the YWCA. The WLA provided a fascinating example of women mobilizing themselves and challenged conventional thinking about gender roles. Hugh here. That was the intro to the article, which you can read by following the link in the show notes. Now, here are some articles from 100 years ago this week about farmerettes at the New York State Fair. Farmerettes to Parade at Fair on Thursday Combined efforts of all the women's organizations of the state have perfected an interesting program of women's activities to be presented to the thousands of women visitors at the State Fair. Thursday will be Gala Day. The feature of the program is the reception in honor of Mrs. Charles S. Whitman at 4 o'clock at the Women's Building under the direction of the State Federation of Women's Clubs. Mrs. A. H. Hildreth is chairman. Another feature of the program will be the parade of 200 in uniform who have been engaged in the Women's Land Army throughout the state. Miss Pansy Stone will speak on the Women's Land Army. Mrs. Mary Hyde Andrews, Miss Harriet May Mills, and Mrs. A. E. Oberlander will be among the speakers that afternoon. The program Tuesday will be in charge of the Women's Relief Corps. Mrs. Nellie S. Takel is chairman of the program. The Daughters of Liberty will also preside Tuesday. Mrs. Charles A. Mitchell will make the representative address on that day. One of the features of the Wednesday program will be the speech by Walter Harris, an Australian officer who has been brought to the city by the Four Minute Men organization. The activities of the WCTU will be carried on at the Woman's Building this year. Mrs. Ella A. Houle is scheduled to speak Thursday afternoon. Every day, the WCTU will operate a stereo motograph at the Manufacturer's Building. They will show the same pictures that are shown in the YMCA huts at the cantonments. Hugh here. If you're like me, I say that a lot, don't I? If you're like me. Thing is, chances are you ain't like me, because I don't see a hell of a lot of people making podcasts about historical newspaper articles. Anyway, when I read that article, I, as the vast majority of humanity would almost certainly not do, said to myself, Wubba, huh? Stereo motograph? What the what now? 
Well, turns out that was a misprint. The actual word is stereomotograph. Basically, it's an automated stereopticon. Yeah, I know. I'm being a pain in the ass. I just like saying stereomotograph and stereopticon. Okay, you know those old-timey slide viewer glasses that look kind of like steampunk binoculars? Each slide has two slightly different images that resolve into one 3D image. A stereopticon is a projector version of that. Check out the show notes for a sweet illustration. Now, a stereomotograph is an automated version of that. Sort of a combination stereopticon and carousel slide projector. In case you missed it, the article I just read mentioned that the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, set up their stereomotographs at the fair to display the same pictures that the YWCA showed in the cantonments. I found an article from one month earlier printed in the Wilmar Tribune of Wilmar, Minnesota, which tells about the WCTU's purchase of the machines. Here's an excerpt. Since the United States entered the war, the national WCTU has engaged in many lines of service. A recent report says that for educational purposes, through the United Committee on War Temperance Activities for the Army and Navy, 16 stereomotographs have been placed in the cantonments at an expense of $10,000. These stereomotographs are passed from one camp to another so that their lessons reach in succession large numbers of men. Hugh here. So the Women's Christian Temperance Union spent $10,000, that's $10,000 in 1918, mind you, for stereomotographs for the purpose of war temperance activities. When I googled stereomotograph, the very first thing I found was a reminder of how aggressively editors drew a veil over salacious material at this time. Turns out, those machines were used primarily to educate soldiers about venereal disease. Check out the show notes for pictures of these displays and of soldiers watching them. The following is from the 1918 American Social Hygiene Association publication, Social Hygiene, Volume 4. The stereomotograph, an automatic exhibit display machine based on the principle of the stereoopticon, has been found a very efficient instrument for instruction. Groups of soldiers, perhaps a little held by the mere novelty of the machine, stand and watch the pictures tell their story and drive deep their arguments. The machine continues to flash as long as the electricity is turned on. One after another, the 52 slides are thrown on the screen, remain 20 seconds, and disappear, the series beginning again with number 1 when number 52 has been shown. The stereomotograph was first used for social hygiene educational work by the American Social Hygiene Association, and the slides used by the division were originally prepared by the same association. Three sets of 52 slides each are provided for every Army stereomotograph, and two sets of 52 slides each are provided for every Navy stereomotograph. 31 stereomotographs have been supplied to 31 Army establishments, and 17 stereomotographs have been sent to 16 Naval establishments. The most recent form of graphic instruction utilized by the Social Hygiene Instruction Division is motion pictures, of which two are now in use. One, entitled Fit to Fight, was prepared especially for use among soldiers. 
The film entitled How Life Begins is a well-known popular science picture which is being shown in camps by the division through the courtesy of the American Social Hygiene Association. In the camps in which these pictures have been shown, lively interest has been manifested by officers and men, but the experiment has not yet progressed far enough to indicate the full value of this method of instruction. Hugh here. So the stereomotograph occupies a narrow and peculiar sliver of human history. Prior to the advent of talkies, it was the military's best option for a flashy, literally flashy, method of STD education. And I find it fascinating that women's organizations were instrumental in implementing these public health and education programs. But here's the really fascinating thing. It's also an excellent illustration of the media's warped historiography. I tend to think of temperance as synonymous with not drinking, but clearly the women in the temperance movement embraced a much broader meaning of that word. Looking at the newspaper articles which so assiduously expurgate the sexual aspect of temperance, it's no wonder that narrowed meaning came down to me. This is the opposite of the sort of contextualization I've been harping on. I find it illuminating to go back to contemporary media and tease out a narrative because it gives me a glimpse into how people thought at that time, which one often can't get from modern recastings. But here we see the importance of finding out what the newspapers of the time were leaving out, and boy oh boy is Google handy for that. This STD-shaped negative space in the newspapers speaks both to the sensibilities of people from 1918 and to the distorted vision we have of them. Now, here's a second article about farmerettes at the fair. The Farmerette There was more than gallantry in the applause for the farmerettes at the state fair. The farmer girls are not show patriots. They do not dress up in the farmerette costume because it is pretty for it isn't. They are industrious and skillful farmhands, learning readily the ways of a strange business, and winning completely the farmers for whom they worked. They have been a mighty important factor in increasing the food supply. The next season should see their numbers multiplied, for the girls who have gone for it testify that their work has been healthful and interesting as well as profitable and the farmers are ready to hire all of them they can get. Hugh here, and now for the third article about the farmerettes. 200 farmerettes on parade at fair receive ovation. Clad in breeches and tunics, women present feature. English woman delivers address. Headed by the Gould Military Band of Seneca Falls, 200 farmerettes in breeches and tunics paraded the fairgrounds yesterday afternoon led by Miss Pansy Stone and Mrs. Florence Young, Field Secretary of the Woman's Land Army of New York State. Every unit of the Land Army dropped harvest work for the day to go to the fair to meet the Governor and Mrs. Whitman. Twenty-five tractors brought up the rear of the parade. The farmerettes were well received on the grounds and later by the racetrack fans when they marched to the grandstand. There, Miss Sophie Carey of England gave a five-minute speech on the effective farm work done by the English women and outlined the organization of the Greater Women's Land Army next year. Hugh here. 
So, after reading that Smithsonian piece, along with those post-standard articles, we know that the farmerettes got away with wearing pants, which was a big deal in 1918. But what about the vast non-farmerette masses of females? Did they get to wear pants? Woohoo! I did it! I have achieved Segway! Woman, dressed like man, arrested at the fair. Mrs. Hall claims she can wear trousers if Dr. Mary Walker does. I've always stood for women's rights, and I suppose that this is the reason why I am in this fix. Mrs. Mary E. Hall of number 324 Montgomery Street, as she gave her name and address, told the state troopers who arrested her at the state fairgrounds yesterday afternoon for masquerading in man's attire. Or do you suppose it was because of my nervousness that I was recognized as a woman? Those who saw the small figure clothed in gray striped trousers, a black frock coat, and black crinoline cap with a patent leather front piece certainly agreed that it was the nervous woman's walk which gave away Mrs. Hall's identity. She was very indignant at being taken to police headquarters. Didn't Dr. Mary Walker wear men's clothes? She demanded when she was arraigned before the judge. I haven't done a thing wrong in my life, and I know that I can wear trousers if Dr. Walker does. The woman was escorted to the trolley car by the troopers and warned not to return to the grounds unless she came attired as was becoming to a daughter of Eve. Hugh here. On the same day, reprints of that article, or at least pieces of it, appeared in two Oswego newspapers. Seeing as how Mary E. Walker lived there, folks would have been interested in hearing how Mary E. Hall referred to Walker during her arrest. So in two episodes, we've spanned almost exactly 50 years, and two Mary E.'s. From a Utica newspaper man in 1868 framing Mary E. Walker as just one of the many fatuous fashion trends babbling from Saratoga Springs, to New York State troopers in 1918 arresting Mary E. Hall at the state fair for wearing men's clothes. And with that, we have a full-throated answer to the question I posited. Yes. Yes, Mary E. Walker's 50-year-long resistance against gender rules had a positive effect, because at the end of those 50 years, just five months before Walker's death and about two years before the 19th Amendment, Hall put on men's clothes and went to the state fair with Walker in mind. From the vantage point of 100 years in the future, the contrast between her act and the police response may seem absurd, but I want you to listen to that last line of the article again, and remember, those officers didn't think their response was absurd at all. They thought it was proportional. Here it is. The woman was escorted to the trolley car by the troopers and warned not to return to the grounds unless she came attired as was becoming to a daughter of Eve. Okay, I'm going to roll right past the hilarious irony of that statement and just emphasize that the state troopers were so at a loss as to how to deal with Mary E. Hall that in order to justify kicking her out, they had to reference the Bible. That's how much she ruffled their feathers. And remember that according to Hall's own words, she was so nervous that she gave herself away. 
it's not unreasonable to think that without Walker's example, she never would have put on men's clothing and gone to the fair that day. Walker's example inspired her and strengthened her resolve. Multiply that inspiration, that strengthening, and that ruffling of feathers by all the millions of women who heard those same stories of Mary E. Walker. I don't care how many people made fun of her, the countless surges of inspiration within the minds of countless women across the country must have amounted to a net positive. And I find that inspiring, to know that Walker's detractors notwithstanding, she broadcast a signal of defiance for over 50 years, and women received that signal. May that example fortify us all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, and my love he stolen away.